Um, so we're talking about exercise as, as medicine. If I'm talking too loud, let me know. Sometimes I do that. I have nothing to disclose. Uh, learning objectives for today. Describe structural differences of a pain brain. Explain the role of exercise in remodeling the pain brain. Cite key tips to overcoming fear avoidance. And describe core principles of developing an, ex an effective exercise program for pain patients. I'll be showing some pictures of my, my staff and my patients exercising throughout the presentation. By the way, I, I work at one of the, I think one of the, probably the few true interdisciplinary, fully integrated, private-owned pain centers in the country. Um, and so we've got everything happening there on site all the time, including lots of, lots of physical activity. I want to start with a first case study. A uh, lady I saw a couple years ago, 31-year-old lady, uh, came in uh, for a consultation with a, a three-year history of, of chronic back pain. Young lady, uh, had already had a fusion uh, a year prior, uh, had gotten worse after the surgery, um, was, uh, had, had kind of shut it down. She was uh, living with her, moved in with her parents. Uh, she was no longer working. Uh, she needed assistance from her mother to do her basic ADLs. And she was pretty much lying flat all day long. And she was on uh, OxyContin. And she came and told me it was not working as well as it used to. And I needed to do something about that. Um, so she asked me the question, Do Doctor, will I get better? Well, what's the answer to that? Well, I told her, I said, that depends on what you do. And if you get off that couch, you get off that bed, you will get better. But if you don't, you are not going to get better. And it wasn't what she wanted to hear. She wanted to hear how I was going to adjust the OxyContin. Um, but have you ever seen anyone who lays flat all day long just miraculously get better and overcome their chronic pain challenges? No, you don't. I don't. I don't think. So kind of philosophically, chronic pain is what, kind of what I'm focusing on uh, with the exercise talk, the topic. You know, we, we talk about it as a chronic disease, right? It's a, it's a chronic disease, so we're talking about chronic disease management. Chronic pain is an experience. It's an experience that we all go through. We all have our own experience of what it is and what it is like. It's based on, on us and who we are and, and the life that we've gone through. And so everybody's got an experience wrapped around what is a chronic disease. And when we're approaching it as are you guys, is everyone in the room a provider? Are there patients in the room? Are there doctors, physical therapists, psychologists, every a little bit of everything. Um, you know, are you the symptom manager? Is that what your focus is as, as, the, as the provider, as the caretaker? Um, or, you know, which is a, a more passive approach, what can I do to cover up or diminish somebody's symptoms versus active treatment where you're not just doing something to the patient, but the patient is engaged in the therapeutic process. I think there's a difference. And then there's a distinction between healing and fixing. You know, patients come, they say, hey, man, am I going to get better? Are you going to fix me? I say, well, you know, I, I wish I could. Um, you know, you're not a machine. You're not a car. I can't take the uh, old part out, put a new part in. But I can help you heal. I can help you heal through the injuries, the pain that you have, the trauma that you've experienced, wh whatever it is, whatever the layers are to that onion. We can work through that, and we can work on a healing process. But I can't just fix you. If you were injured in 2013, I can't give you the body 
that you had in 2012. That's not going to happen. None of us can go back in time that way. Um, and then, you know, if we're looking at chronic pain as a chronic disease, as an experience, where, where does exercise uh, fit into that? Well, we know, you know, you guys all know the health benefits of exercise. We know that it's good for our cardiovascular health. We know it's good for our blood sugar regulation. We know that we have a diabetes epidemic in our country now. We know that it helps fight obesity. It's good for our bone health. Um, it, now we're starting to learn that it helps prevent dementia as we get older. And it can help with, you know, better sleep, better sex life. You know, who doesn't want all these things, right? But if you're a pain patient and you're not active and you're not able to move, you're not able to do things, look at all the health problems that you can have because of your, your chronic pain problem that, you know, you're, you're inactive over. It's a big deal. So the concept of the, of the pain brain is the kind of the way I help uh, people understand or my patients understand what a chronic pain disease is. It's a brain-based disease in many ways. Um, and what we've come to learn from research on, you know, the neurosciences and brain imaging, a lot of things, is that the chronic pain brain is structurally different. It looks, di this, the pain brain looks different than the non-pain brain, structurally different. And part of this uh, story is the neuroplasticity, you know, that we, we hear a lot about now, we're learning a lot about, that the, it's, a, it's a moldable, shapeable organ. Our, it's a living, breathing thing. It's always moving and adapting, uh, which is great news, you know, if we know how to harness that. And I think it's very empowering for patients when they understand that but also helps us understand how we get stuck in a chronic pain situation. And I think that the, the experience of pain becomes associated with a whole bunch of these recognizable neuroplastic changes that take place throughout the brain. So what are some of these structural changes we're talking about? Well, you know, we have to, we got, this is very basic. You know, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscience genius here, so we're, we're approaching it from a, from a very kind of basic level. But our gray matter shrinks. When we're in pain, chronic pain, the gray matter shrinks. It, it ages us. We, we see advanced aging changes on a gray matter level. And the white matter, you know, the sort of cables, you know, that speed everything along throughout our nervous system, that structurally changes. So the, our ability to, to transmit information throughout our nervous system changes. The glial cells, right, the, the hot topic in, in pain research over the last decade, one of them anyway, has been glial cells, these supportive little cells, millions of them around our, our brain, our spinal cord, uh, around all our nerves. And now we know that they play a huge role in, in, in developing chronic pain and becoming a chronic pain state. They sort of, you know, as, as I say, uh, fan the flames. You know, they, they get it going and they keep it going uh, once the pain, the pain message gets in the, the neurologic system. And when all that happens and everything is lighting up, that's what we call, or, you know, the, the pain matrix develops. We've got all these places in the brain, you know, going, going berserk because it's experiencing this, this sort of revved up pain state. And genetically, while our, our gene sequencing doesn't change, the way we regulate, turn on and off, a whole host of genes changes dramatically. And, and there, it plays a big role in the shift into this sort of chronic pain state. So this is what happens when a person evolves into this, this, this state of, of chronic pain. And what are all the different parts of the pain matrix? There's a whole lot of parts. Uh, I'm going to go over a few of them that we, we seem to understand more about having to do with pain. Uh, the somatosensory cortex, which is the kind of map in our brain of, 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 our, of our, where our body is, where everything is. If I touch my finger, I know I'm touching my left index finger because it's all recorded in the map in my brain. Uh, the motor cortex, which regulates our body's movements. 
part of the pain matrix. Uh, the amygdala, which is our, our kind of mood center, our emotional processing uh, part of our brain where we're experiencing anger, fear, depression, things like that, anxiety. Uh, that's a big part of the pain matrix. Uh, the prefrontal cortex, which is our, our executive functioning decision maker, our CEO of, of who we are, is heavily involved when we're in pain. And, and as a matter of fact, it shrinks when we're, but, you know, when we're experiencing pain for an extended period of time. It's not as healthy as it can be. The, uh, the hippocampus, which is our learning and memory center, that shrinks, gets smaller uh, when we're experiencing chronic pain, the stress of that. Uh, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis, our, our fight or flight uh, system. You know, do you guys all check your patients' blood pressures? Does anyone come on with a normal blood pressure when they see you? It's always high, right? Everybody's system is, is revved up. Um, the, the anterior cingulate cortex, or ACC, where a lot of this uh, thinking and emotional processing takes place, reward mechanisms, impulse control, uh, whether we feel empathy, our ability to feel empathy with others. Um, and interestingly, when you do experimental studies and you lesion uh, the ACC, you, you, you create personality changes uh, in people. So you, it's, it's a, it has a, a big uh, you know, part of, of, of who we are as a person happens in that part of our brain. And then there's the, uh, kind of similar to that is the, the insular cortex, which uh, kind of brings the, um, the homeostasis between the brain and the body, kind of helps regulate that. Um, has a lot to do with how we judge things, especially our pain. I use the example of a skunk, right? When you smell a skunk, what do you go? What do you say? You say, ooh, that stinks, right? Why does it stink? Because there's a part of your brain that makes a judgment about what the smell smells like. Otherwise, it's just a smell, just like any other smell. And then, when this is all going on, it's like a symphony, right? All these things happening. You lead, the patient goes down a road of what we sometimes call central sensitization, when the circuits are all in overdrive, and all of a sudden, everything hurts, right? Maybe it would start off with a foot injury or a lower back injury, but now the whole body hurts, and every time you try, you touch it, you move it, you do anything, Hurts, 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 right? The system is in overdrive. It's like you've turned the volume on your stereo full blower. So another case study. EM came to see me back in 2010 and uh, had presented with a bad CRPS problem, complex regional pain syndrome. Everybody know what that is? Anybody doesn't? Okay, awesome. So he had been electrocuted at work, an electrocution injury, and as a result of that, he developed a horrible pain problem with his right upper extremity to the point that he couldn't use it. So by the time he came to see me, he already had a spinal cord stimulator in place. He was on fentanyl patches, high-dose fentanyl, like 150 mics an hour. He was also on hydrocodone. He was on Lyrica for the nerve pain. He was on Restoril to take at night to sleep. He was on Xanax for his anxiety and panic attacks. Um, when he came in, he was broken, both physically and psychologically. He had flexion contractures in his right arm. He was very depressed, I mean dark depressed, suicidal thoughts. Um, and he had a Tampa score of 53. Do you know what a, the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia? It, it's a measure of fear avoidance, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. A, a score of 53 is really high. It means you're super afraid to move or do anything. So, so I saw him in 2010, and then his body started to move in 2014. So you must be thinking, 
But what happened between 2010 and 2014? Are we thinking? We're asking? What? And you may be saying, well, if you're such a good doctor, how come it took you four years? <laughs> and I told you I was just a dumb anesthesiologist, right? No. Um, so what happened was, let me kind of go through it with you a little bit. So as we said, he'd already had all the medicines. He'd had all the high-tech stuff. He had the stimulator in, he, you know, and he was in a very bad place. So we, we, one of the things that we do at my center is we have a, a structured, comprehensive, all-day program. It's called, we call it a functional restoration program. We tried, we tried to put EM into that program. A lot of our CRPS patients do that and, and do well with it. No, did not go well. Uh, only lasted you know, maybe through the first week and then, then had to stop. You know, it was just too much. He was overloaded, and his system was, was just ramped up, and uh, it, it was, it was a no-go. So we had to take him out. And I had to sit down and I say, well, what are we going to do to get you better? And I said, I'll tell you what, this was too much for you. Why don't you just come in one hour a week to the center and just exercise on your own a little bit independently I'll get, at a time when I have staff available to kind of, if you have any questions or need a little help, let's just do that. So let's, say, let's see what you do. You know, take this, you know, take a little bit of initiative. It means you have to show up. Just come in for an hour a week. Let's just see what happens. So he did that for a year. And he did that for another year. But he came in. He came in every week. And um, he participated. He did his, he could hardly move. He could hardly do anything. But little by little, he started to uh, come around. And he started to see what other people were doing. Look at that guy over here. Look what he's doing. Uh, and so he started to push himself a little bit more. Um, and then I would check in with him every couple months. Hey, how's this going? Okay, keep it up. Way to go. Glad you're coming in. And then uh, one day he comes in and he says, Doc, I'm ready to get off these medications. I said, really? He goes, yeah, get me off these medications. So, so we did that. And um, we use, you know, with a lot of our opioid-dependent patients, we use buprenorphine a lot. Uh, so he transitioned off of very high-dose opioids onto buprenorphine. Did well with that. Um, but still... Still pretty stuck, still having a hard time uh, getting better. So what happened in 2014 that changed this? Any guesses? Zumba. <laughs> so in, in, in 2014, uh, one of the trainers on my team, who's actually not in the picture right here, uh, Lucrecia Martinez, is a wonderful salsa dancer. And whatever we would have uh, Christmas parties, her and her husband would, you know, embarrass everybody else with how good of dancers they were. Um, so she had this sort of Latin dance uh, background and uh, was into dancing and Zumba and things like that. So she came up with a whole program modified for people with disabilities, with all kinds of different disabilities, so that they could dance to the same music that everybody else dances to when they do Zumba or, you know, salsa dancing, things like that. And as you can see in the picture, you know, there's a person in a chair, so there's chair modifications for people who need that. And, and my, my, my guy, EM, he, he's the middle guy there with the arm up in the black shirt. Um, so, and you can see the contracture in his right arm. And I got to tell you, this, is, this picture was done maybe when this first started a couple years ago. If you saw a picture of him today, he's about 50 pounds lighter. He's svelte. He looks very calm, very different. And um, so after this class started, once a week, he would come in with some of the other patients, and they would participate. And then eh, several months down the road, 
we had, a, we had some scheduling changes we had to make, and, and Lucrecia could not do the class anymore. She didn't have time in her schedule to lead the class. So what did he do? He said, I want to teach the class. So we said, you go, you go. So he started coming in, and he started teaching a class. And he teaches it uh, every week and to this day. And he comes in every week, does the sort of Latin dance Zumba class. Other patients come in, dance with him. It's all volunteer, uh, volunteer stuff. Um, but as I said, he's become very athletic. He's gotten a lot of confidence. His mood's a lot better. A lot of positive things have happened uh, for him. Uh, exercise in the pain brain. Exercise can lead to very positive neuroplastic changes in the pain brain. Exercise stimulates the production of uh, neuro neurotrophic factors which promote nerve health, nerve growth, nerve activity, which is what we want. Neuroplastic changes can take place after just 30 minutes of activity like pedaling. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot. And uh, neurogenesis, which is our ability to grow new nerve cells, uh, takes place within the hippocampus, which, as we said, was our, our learning center of our brain, sharpens our brain function. Exercise stimulates activity in the, the insula cortex. We talked about that, that you know, pain matrix area, the insula. Uh, enhances activity in important parts of the prefrontal cortex. Remember we said our motivational center was shutting down, our decision-making was closing down? Now we're starting to boost it up. And it activates reward centers in the brain. So the more we do it, the more we like it. And exercise enhances connectivity between the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex in experiments with mice, suggests an impact on building resilience during stress. So what does that mean? What they do is they, they take two groups of mice. They let one group exercise, and the other group, they don't let them exercise. And then they stress them out, and they take, you know, they do brain studies, brain scans to see what's going on in there. And they see that um, they seem to develop a, a sort of resilience that the, the non-exercising mice don't have, and, and they sort of relate that to some of the, the connectivity taking place between key parts of the pain matrix, including the, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And then exercise has a positive effect on, on anxiety in the ventral hippocampus, and there's a lot of studies, I think, out there that have seen a positive effect on exercise on other mood problems like, like depression. The pain body. So we talked about the pain, the pain brain, and we got to talk about the, the pain body because these guys are always in communication with each other. So I kind of define the pain body as, as the, the adjustments and changes that take place in our bodies in response to our pain. It's how we kind of reorganize our bodies in response to this chronic pain um, experience that we have. Uh, the pain body floods the pain brain with all kinds of nasty things, inflammatory mediators, stress hormones, uh, immune cells, nerve signals that reinforce the pain and perpetuate the chronic pain experience going on in the brain. So this neuroplastic brain is taking it all in, and when the body is, you know, sending these kind of messages, this is kind of the, the, the interaction that happens. And the, the pain body is often kind of out of shape, deconditioned, out of balance, you know, not, not, things not in good balance. Um, some body parts are overactive, overdoing things, while other parts are not doing anything at all, underactive, so out of balance there. Uh, the pain body is often very guarded, guards a lot of uh, parts or things that don't feel well, and there's a lot of atrophy, wasting of muscles in the pain body. There we go. Fear avoidance. So I always tell patients that fear is your evil, wicked stepmother in your chronic pain story. And... Uh, 
fear avoidance is when patients develop this unhealthy avoidance of movement and activity because of the fear of pain or the fear of other things associated with the pain. And then they shut down. They, they don't move, they don't do things, and they start to live in, in a small box. The avoidance impedes recovery from physical injury and leads to maladaptive body mechanics. So all the things I was talking about in the slide before that with the pain body, the avoidance perpetuates that and makes it worse and worse. And, and fear avoidance is a measurable response. There's a, there's a number of different uh, measurement tools out there to measure that. I, I, I mentioned the Tampa uh, scale kinesiophobia, which, which we use at my center, and, and I think there's others out there. So it's something you can quantify, you can measure, and when you measure it, you can remeasure it as you're treating your patients to see what's changing, to see how is that getting better. And I, example I use a lot with, with patients uh, when, I, when I talk with them about this, example, example of sprained ankle. So let's suppose I sprained my ankle. Two weeks, I'm off it, right? I, I keep it elevated. I don't do anything. I, I, you know, I ice it a little bit. If I have to walk, I use the crutches. No weight bearing. Two weeks. Then after two weeks, sprained ankle starts to get better, and I try to walk. I start walking. And I say, how am I doing? Patients, they all say, you're okay. I go, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to go. Now I say, now suppose I sprain my ankle, and for six months, I keep it elevated, and I don't use it. Six months, elevated, no weight bearing, and if I have to do something, I go to the bathroom, I'll use my crutches, okay? Then I say, okay, after six months, now I'm going to try to walk. What's going to happen? They all say, oh, doctor, not good, not good. And that's exactly right, because what's happened now, in six months, everything has changed. The whole body has changed around this injury. You know, and you look at it, you can kind of break it down part by part. My whole left leg is probably very atrophied now, very thin, maybe compared to my right. My right leg probably doesn't feel good. You know, my knee probably hurts. I put it on my weight on one side for six months. My back starts to hurt. My armpits hurt from the, you know, the crutches. I mean, you can, you can sort of go down the line from head to toe and see all kinds of wholesale changes that have taken place in the body. And then I tell them, well, that's what fear avoidance has now done to you because now you're trying to get better, you're trying to move, you're trying to exercise and rehabilitate yourself. It's really complicated now, right? Because it's not just you rehabilitating your ankle, it's you rehabilitating your whole body now. And so this is a big project, and I think they get that. So some tips to help patients overcome the fear avoidance. They need smart coaches. So patients, they don't understand people in pain don't understand the unhealthy fears that they have. They develop, they creep into the brain, but it's hard to know which ones are holding us back and which ones aren't without a little help. They need a little, they need a little coaching, they need a little explanation, they need a little help seeing the difference between what's protecting them and what's actually keeping them from getting better and recovering. So they need some help with that. And then I think patients need a little visualization. They need to start to go through the process of visualizing what is it going to be like to start to use whatever it is they've avoided using, start to program the brain to think through the process a little bit. And breath training, very important in the gym, is the, you know when someone's using a body part that they're afraid to use, what are they doing with their breath? Right? Nobody wants to breathe. They're holding their breath and they're scared to ever, you know, they're, they're terrified, terrified. So the... You know, breathing exercises, help, as we know, helps re induce a relaxation response, parasympathetic induction. We want them to start to, to do a little bit of that maybe before they do the activity, maybe breathe slow and easy while they're doing the activity, and then when they're done, also 
do some breathing exercises. Baby steps are very important. Baby steps build confidence. You want your patients to build confidence in their, in their movements with their bodies. Um, and so little is okay. They have to understand it's a very small process, but it adds up very quickly. And then I, I say acceptance, love, and carry on. People in pain are, they don't like their bodies. They're, 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 sometimes they hate their bodies. And they, they feel guilty about how they look or how they look when they move. Um, they're not happy with themselves. And so some level, I think, of acceptance of, of what is, is needed. And I think they need to learn, they need help to learn how to love their bodies again and to embrace what they have and to take what they have and to make it thrive in whatever ways that they can. And I think the, the, the treatment team needs to help them work through that and, and get to that point. Some core principles of exercising the, the pain uh, body. So I think the right team is important. They have to trust you. If they don't trust you, it's not going to work. They have to feel like they can trust you. And it's hard to build trust when you're asking somebody to do something they don't want to do. And it's hard to build trust when you're asking them to do something that they're scared to death to do. So that is a slow-moving process sometimes, but they've got to believe in you. They've got to trust you. You've got you to gain their trust to get to, to first base with that. Um, building a strong foundation within the body, some of the core uh, strength activities. I went to one of the talks earlier today about core strength and low back pain, saying it doesn't really necessarily always help low back pain. And I thought, I thought, I thought that, was, that was a good point. Uh, but my point is, I think everything that our body does needs a foundation. You know, if you have a, you know, like for example, if you, if you tear your ACL in your knee, the right side of your core is going to become very weak very quickly. Um, and you need to build that up when you've been injured or when your body's deconditioned or not strong for uh, whatever reason. And I think all the other movements of the arms and legs and everything else becomes easier when the foundation is stronger. Um, find the knots. So... Myofascial triggers, I think we all, all, everybody in pain gets them. You know, no matter what kind of chronic pain problem you have, whether it's a neuropathic pain problem, uh, an arthritis pain problem, or, you know, you can go through the list, but there's always some element of tight triggers in different parts of the body that are holding, holding people back from doing things. It's good to identify them, and it's good to work through those. You know, it might be you know, massage or passive modalities, but maybe there's some uh, active stretches that are, you know, learned. Maybe there's some, you know, self-massage, body rolling, you know, wh whatever it takes. It, it's always helpful to, as the practitioner to find some of those spots because, you know, working on those is going to be part of the success project. And then teaching pacing. You know, some people have a heart, you know, they, they want to they do everything right away, right? They want to they they get it all right away. Uh, but recovering when our bodies have been through what they've been through, when everything has been shut down for a long time, is a slow process. Um, and a lot of times we have to help our patients learn how to pace at the right level for, for them. Uh, one of the uh, tools that our, our head of rehab uses, which I think is really helpful, is uh, with patients, when you're trying to figure out how much exercise or activity they should do on any, any given day, you want to know what they feel like the day after. You know, the day after... If, they, if, they're, if they're in bed for three days after whatever you had them do, then they did too much that day. You know, they, they got run over by a truck. That's not good. You don't want them to feel that way the, the day after. You want them to feel like the next day they can, they can be active again and have consecutive days of, of some sort of uh, activity. So it's good to monitor the day after. Core principles. Uh, the mind-body techniques, use them to your advantage. Um, things that coordinate the breath with the movement of, of the body. 
And um, it helps calm down the nervous system while the body's moving. And I, I think Tai Chi is a great example. You know, Tai Chi has been shown to have so many health benefits. It helps your balance. It helps you get stronger. makes you more flexible, more aerobically conditioned, believe it or not. Um, and it improves your, you know, diminishes your fall risk. So many great things. But if you're, you watch somebody doing Tai Chi, it doesn't really look like, I mean, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, MMA fighting by any you know, stretch of imagination. It's very slow, gentle movements with the breath being well-coordinated, but the benefits are sometimes fantastic, and it's something that a lot of chronic pain patients can do. I just use it as, as one example. Uh, walk the walk. So speed, how fast you can walk, your gait speed, and how far and how long you can walk. Really, a quality of life, uh, for, for really anyone, and certainly someone with a pain problem, a chronic pain problem, your mobility is heavily, your quality of life is heavily linked to your mobility and what you can do and where you can go and how you can do things. And when you lose that, you lose your quality of life. And the, the less mobile you become, the worse and worse your life gets and you start to live in a, in a little box and the world, the world becomes very, very small for you. So things like how fast a person can walk, we, we see good correlations to, to health and how long a person lives tied to, to how fast they can walk. You know, can they walk fast enough to cross the street before the light changes? But if they can't, then they're not going to cross the street. And then, so they're not going to go there. And, and then just the, the distance, you know, how long can a person walk? Those are important quality of life uh, measurements that are going to help your patients. And then the stair, you know, people don't like to use the stairs, you know, whether you, regardless of your, your, your health situation. Pain, pain patients like to avoid using the stairs. Have you ever watched some of your patients try to go up and down stairs with, you know, back injuries or other injuries, knee injuries, whatever? So it, it, sometimes it's pretty scary to watch. And, um, but if you can start to learn how to go up and down stairs, there's so much that the body, you know, so much strength that goes into that for the body, so much coordination of movement, core strength, so many different things, it's a huge win. And it's also really great for your health when you're able to go up and down stairs. So a little bit of uh, stair training, even if it's going up one step at a time, uh, valuable for your patients to learn that if they can. Lucrecia, our salsa dancer. Creating motivation. So exercising uh, is stressful for patients with chronic pain, and it's difficult to do. And um, try to make it fun. Um, you can, there's a lot of things you can do. You can, you can play games. You can use music. I think the, uh, the music has a huge impact in what type of music you use. Uh, dance, you know, as an example, sometimes is a way of moving the body to music. And you can get people to do things when they're dancing that you can't get them to do the same activity when they're not dancing. It's very interesting. Um, you can make, you know, competition. We, we, we have a, we, uh, every Friday we do Wii Bowling. We have Wii Bowling tournaments for the patients. Because uh, they work hard all week, you know, we've been pushing them to, to do things, and so we let them have a little bit of fun. Um, the Wii is actually a really great rehabilitation tool. We, we've been using it for, for, for a number of years. There's a lot of things you, you can do with it if, if you have access to that. Um, it makes it fun for, for, for folks who are participating. That's our gym. Building self-efficacy. This is an important way of helping patients overcome fear avoidance, an important way of helping patients become successful in improving quality of their lives through exercise and activity. Um, small victories. So I think P 
people need to recognize when they've accomplished something, even if it's very small. You know, Jim, where I work out, there's a, one of the spin class teachers every week when he does his class at the very end, he raises his arms up in the air, and everybody does the same thing. He says, small victories lead to big victories. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a great point. And so we need, we need to acknowledge all the small achievements that the patients are making on their journey. Um, reflect on past success. So people are feeling down. They, they feel defeated. They don't think they can do something. We have all succeeded at things in our lives at some point in our, in our past histories. And sometimes you just need to sit down and talk about those. Hey, how did you get, you know, when did you get past that past challenge that you had? How did you overcome that? What did you do? We've all done it at some point in our lives, and I think if we can get our patients to get reconnected to times in their lives when they were able to overcome significant challenges, it, it'll help them for what the problem is today. Give and get support. That builds self-efficacy. So if you're working on something yourself and you start to help somebody else with the same problem, that makes you feel good. That builds your self-confidence. It builds your self-efficacy, and it starts to go back and forth. So you go to the gym one day and you, you work out, and then you help somebody else with whatever, with this, maybe the same exercise, and you feel good about that, it's going to make you want to go back to the gym the next day and keep going and going because you're helping other people, and that makes you feel good. That builds your self-confidence and makes you more effective in your own personal journey and struggle. Forgive the failure. We have to help our patients. You know, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail. We're not going to get everything done the first time. Um, we might have to fail over and over and over again to get to where, where we want to go. Uh, so we just need to remind them of that, that it's okay, that we're going to get there. Again, visualize future success. What are the goals? What is the goal of treatment? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, a lot of patients want to be able to play ball with their kids. They want to be able to throw the ball. Or maybe they want to carry the baby, the newborn baby. Maybe the grandma can't lift her, 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 her granddaughter. That hurts. Those are tangible goals uh, that, that our patients have. And so let's, let's figure out what they are. Let's visualize doing them and what it's going to take to be able to do them. And let's work through the process. And then last one is, I call it two steps forward, one step back. I learned this one the hard way. Overcoming, recovering uh, from injury, recovering from chronic pain problems is not a smooth road. And it's not linear. You don't go from A to Z and you just keep getting better. It doesn't work that way. Actually, it's a very rocky ride. And it's, a, it's not a fun flight to be on sometimes. We make a little progress and we think things are going well. And then all of a sudden, we have a bad flare-up or we have a bad setback. Something unfortunate bad happens. And we need to coach our patients to recognize that that's part of the process. It doesn't mean you're going back to the bad place. It doesn't mean everything that you've done to get to where you are has failed. It just means you have a little setback. You're having a flare-up maybe. And all the tools that you've learned to get to where you are at that point, you're going to use them now. Use them and work through whatever this new challenge, whatever this new uh, setback is. And after you've had your step back, you're going to step forward again. Okay, case study. This will be my last one. RT presented as a 49-year-old firefighter with a low back injury who had been uh, off of work for 18 months. Now, RT is not your community-based firefighter. He's what we call cow firefighter. So those big forest fires where, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres is burning down, those are the kind of fires he fights, and you have to be out there for days on end carrying very, very heavy equipment, sometimes up and down hills. So that's kind of firefighter RT is. When they worked him up after his injury, he had uh, some 
you know, lower back issues at L405 and at L5S1. They had some electrodiagnostic EMG testing done, found radiculitis on the right side at L4, L5, and S1. All right, not so great, huh? And uh, to be able to do his job, he had to be able to carry 100 pounds uphill and be able to do 12 to 24-hour shifts. So that's kind of how he presented. And I wanted to engage RT in our intensive, comprehensive program that we do. And I, you got to see, that, so before he started treatment, he went through one of those you know, disability evaluations that workers' comp patients have to do. In California, we call them QMEs. You know, I don't know, each state maybe calls them IMEs, whatever you call them. And the doctor said, this guy's never going to work uh, as a firefighter. You should give him a desk job. And basically said, Abachi is FOS. Don't do anything he says. And um, he should have a fusion. He should have a multi-level fusion and then just let him sit in a chair for you know, the rest of his life. And that's as good as it's going to get. So that's what he said. It's not, not what I said. Um, so RT started to go through this process. And so here he is with his gear on. Uh, so he, he started just like everybody else. You know, he was fearful of moving. He hadn't done 18 months. He'd been out of commission, sedentary, so his body was deconditioned. Um, he had the triggers. He had the knots. He had all the things. You know, he wasn't sure what to do. He didn't know what was safe, what wasn't, how to move his body. He had all the same questions that a lot of other patients have. Um, but he went through a step-by-step -step process where after a few weeks, then he started bringing in some of the equipment, and then he started bringing more of the equipment, and here he is going upstairs. You know that, that um, yellow tank there? That is heavy, very heavy. You try lifting it up. That's where that, some of that 100 pounds comes in that he has to carry. And he's holding some extra weights. He's going up and down the stairs. Then we took him outside. We got him doing hills with all his equipment on, all the equipment that he has to wear, 100 pounds of equipment, to do his job as a uh, big-time firefighter. So we went through that process, and, and I, don't, I don't present that as to say, hey, you know, look what we did, uh, because obviously most, most of, very few of our patients become that functional that quickly, um, and I don't think that's the expectation for 99% of the patients that we work with. But I bring it up to show you a point, because the, the doctors who had evaluated him gave him such a negative prognosis of what they thought he could do. It just goes to show you how our medical system sells, our, sells our, ourselves short, we sell our patients short, and how we think we can overcome the problems and how we treat chronic pain, back injuries, neurologic problems, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole gamut of things. And we don't always think about what's possible. So uh, some lessons from home. Uh, as I said, I, I practice in a very integrated interdisciplinary setting. Uh, the people that work at my center are, are awesome. They're wonderful. Uh, they do a great job, and we all support each other. Um, but combining these different techniques with the exercise, I think, pl plays a, an important role. When people are getting psychological help and stabilizing psychological issues, mood disorders, PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, different things, that's going to make a big difference to what they're able to do physically. When people learn how to calm their nervous system through meditation, wellness exercises, um, we use art therapy, all these things have an impact in how well a person is able to, to, to rehabilitate their, their physical body. Uh, so, so always keep that in mind to support the whole person in the journey. The culture is important. The culture that you create 
where your patient's getting treated, I think it has to be the type of culture that you want them to be successful in. It needs to promote physical activity, physical well-being, uh, good exercise, healthy exercise, healthy lifestyle choices. You, you want to create that sort of culture uh, that your patient's experiencing. And a great way to help with that is to, you know, obviously lead by example and do, you know, do the types of things that, you know, practice what you, what you preach is, is always a good thing. And I think ambiance is important. And what I mean by that is the, the, the environment, the physical environment that you create for, for your patients, where they're working, where they're doing their rehab work, where they're doing their psychological work, whatever it is that you're doing with them, I think a, the right atmosphere, the right support is important. Because remember, as I said, these people are self-conscious about their bodies. They don't like the way they look. They don't necessarily you know, want people staring at them if, if they don't feel comfortable with that. Um, you know, the big husky macho guy who can only lift and carry five pounds right now, he's not feeling very good about that. So you, you have to be... Uh, you have, to, you have to create a, a physical environment that they feel safe and supported in. And I think one of the, one of the biggest things uh, that helps people in this journey is the group support. When, when there are other people working through the process that they're working through and they see other people doing well, that has a much bigger impact really than anything I can say or do uh, to, to the patients. It's, it's huge. All right, so a, a uh, self promotional plug here. I'm sorry to do that to you. Uh, but my new book, Conquer Your Chronic Pain, uh, a lot of the, uh, all the references, all the examples that I use in my talk are in the book um, and all the other things uh, that we do to help people manage pain without having to stay uh, dependent on medications. That's what, what we try to do when we can. Questions? Yes. Uh, what do you have on the We have uh, physical therapists. Uh, PT aides, uh, exercise trainers, psychologists, uh, MFTs, who are also art therapists. Um, we have uh, medical doctors, um, pain management, you know, based. Um, we've got nurse practitioners. Um, we have a dentist who comes in part-time who's in the audience here. Say hey, Michelle. All right. uh, Michelle specializes in oral facial uh, pain problems. We don't have an occupational therapist. It's one thing we don't have, but I think there, I, I actually, there's a few that I work with very closely with my patients, but I refer them to their office. So they're, they're kind of an extended part of the team, but they're not physically in the, in the center. You know, the, 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 the bigger the team and the better the team works together and is on the same page, the better the results are going to be. Yes, sir. Well, I haven't done that, but there's, there's some great research being done, you know, out there on that. One of the, I think, the lead, you know, researchers, if you want to learn more uh, about, you know, the, the, the effects of what's going on in the brain with uh, the technology is the research of uh, Vanya Karian at, at North, Northwestern. Um, I discuss him a lot in the, you know, use a lot of his uh, research and some of the examples I use. I, I think that's, you're, you're, you're maybe taking too big of a jump. I think... I understand. I'm just wondering what the effect of exercise is. So I think exercise helps the brain remodel itself. 
and we know that pain remodels the brain. So we see sort of counter-opposing effects on the brain uh, with exercise. And then if we just look at exercise and pain separately, I think you can see a lot of different kind of movement-based activities and how it affects pain, whether it's yoga, core stabilization exercises, walking. You know, you can go through the, the list, and there's been studies done on multiple types of uh, exercise approaches and how it affects uh, pain and well-being. Anything else? Thanks, guys.